Oh, but context, 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 as we come to the scripture, it's so important that we dig into context because whatever is written in, in the Bible, if you will, it was written by a real people in a real place, in a real time, writing to other real people in a real place, in a real time, with uh, all sorts of context surrounding how they lived, why, what, where they are at, what's going on around them, their circumstances, and of course. And then there is a truth that flies underneath it, around it, if you will, that meets us, connects with us, and there is something beautiful that happens within that, but we always want to go through context to get there, if you will, because the Bible, though, the biblical library was not written to us. It was written for us. We benefit. What a gift. But it was not written to us. It was written to, again, real people in a real place and time, which is going to shape things, and it's always good to dig into that. So with that, what I would love to do is pray, and then we'll... uh, We'll, we'll jump in, and it'll be interactive uh, as we like to do that. So if I'm asking questions, uh, it's not rhetorical, um, unless I say this is rhetorical, but, so we'll respond. But we'll, we'll do some interactive with our prayer time and reflection as well. Uh, gracious God, we bless you for the gift of this morning, the gift to gather as your body, the church. Um, grateful to be able to do this, not only here, but to invite Uh, our friends and uh, community that cannot gather with us in person, that they can join us online. That is a gift, and uh, uh, we desire to hear from you. Above all else, we want to take that next right step with you no matter where we are in this walk. If we are trying to find our way back to you, if we are trying to grow in knowing you, God, um, this here now is an invitation for us to take that next right step. So my prayer is that the posture and meditation of my heart, uh, Holy One, and the words of my mouth uh, bring honor and glory to you and you alone, uh, our Lord, our Rock, our Savior, uh, and this we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, All right. Uh, As we come to this final week, um, even though we're wrapping up this series in Revelation, and I would say it's a short seven weeks. This is the seventh week, and that's really, really short when when it comes to this because there's a lot going on. Um, And though wrapping it up, I am really excited because we're doing something we have not done in Harbor Churches, but I have been uh, looking so very forward to and wanting. Next week... We are starting, even though this morning, by the way, is the first day of Advent. Welcome to Advent. Um, We're going to get a little late start, if you will, by next week. We're starting a series. We're going to walk through the book, the Gospel book of Matthew, which will take us at least, right now we have it planned, at least a year that it will take us. We will be in the Gospel book of Matthew. And so, and it really should take much longer, um, but we've at least got it scheduled that we're going to walk verse by verse and go through the book of Matthew, and if you're thinking we're going to be in Matthew the whole time, which of course is a hyperlink to many, 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 many other places, and there's all kinds of things, but yes, we're going to walk through the gospel of Matthew, and it is going to be so good, because it's going to be a giant Bible study, and when we're all done, you all will be some sort of scholar in the gospel of Matthew. Isn't that great? And if you want to know why Matthew and not the other Gospels, great. Next week, we'll have a conversation. It'll be lovely. Um, With that, 
Um, if you can, if you are able, I would love to have you stand. And uh, I just, as we immerse ourselves in Revelation, we get to learn a bit very much about what is this letter of Revelation? What is this Revelation? Let's read the first three verses of the first chapter of Revelation that gives us a good picture. We'll read that together and then we'll unpack it. So, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we'll put it on screen, I believe. Yes. And so, if we can read this together. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Yeah, you may have a seat. Now, within this, uh, if we jump to the next slide, we have this word revelation. The first word actually in there, we, I know it says the, but in the original Greek language, it would be revelation. It's the Greek word apocalypsis. Go ahead and say apocalypsis. That word means to reveal Make known, lay bare, unveil. So the whole thing here, this word means this is a revealing. This is a making known. So if you come to the book of Revelation and you go, oh, it's that crazy book that we don't know anything about. It's a swirling mystery. It's wild. Yes, there is all kinds of symbolism. There's a lot of metaphor within it because it's apocalyptic in nature and genre. But that word means it's to reveal. John is saying, I have been given this. It comes from Jesus Christ, and it is the revelation that Jesus is Lord. That is the revelation. There are lots of visions that John has. He has a number of visions within this, but there is one revelation, and that's Jesus is Lord. And we may go, um, duh. Some people would go, of course. But to that world, first century, we're talking late first century, to them to make that statement, that declaration, to have that revealed, Jesus is on the throne, he is the Lord of all, would be dangerous. Very dangerous. Because then that also means Caesar, the Roman emperor, is not Lord. All of the Greco-Roman deities, pagan deities they have, they're not in charge. We don't bow to them. We don't listen to that. That is a very dangerous statement to make for them. So then, uh, and it says in there, this is a prophetic word. It's prophecy. First and foremost is a word of comfort and or challenge or correction, which we get both of those in this letter. That's what prophecy is. And to me, the best way to explain it, because we often, or I would say most commonly people think prophecy is future telling. And I would say, well, that's not what's going on. 96% of what the prophets, the Hebrew prophets and the Old Testament, the Hebrew prophets, and a lot of that, what they're doing is they're offering a word of challenge or encouragement or correction, all of that. They're telling them, the, the Israelites, this is what we're giving you first and foremost. And why it can often feel like or sometimes even get seen as future telling is because what the Hebrew prophets were saying is, If you continue to live like this, then this is where it's heading. 
It would be me saying, watching you eat, and I say, if you continue to eat, your doctor says to you, you continue to eat that way, you're going to have this physical reaction at some point. Then in three years, you all of a sudden go, oh, I have this pain. And oh, and the doctor said that this would happen. <gasps> he predicted the future. And you go, well, sort of, right? You see what it's saying is he told the truth that he knows or she knows that if you eat this way, your body will react a certain way. Much the Hebrew prophets were saying is, this is what will happen if you continue to disregard God. You continue to bow to these other gods. If you do this, there is going to be a problem. So uh, there's that. And then this is a letter, first and foremost, what we understand and what we see to the seven churches in Asia Minor, what we know as modern-day Turkey. This is who it's written to. first, and it goes through them, and the context of those cities and those places shape what is a lot of times being said. And then it's written in an apocalyptic nature, apocalyptic genre literature, which we don't do a whole lot of as much today, but we also, but we do see fantasy, if you will, in movies where there is symbolism. They do all these different symbols and pictures and metaphors, and a lot of that is happening because John is writing to these people with Rome staring over his shoulder. And if he were to just say things like, the emperor is trash, and Jesus is Lord, and forget that stuff, and Rome is a joke, and don't bow down to this. If he just said it cleanly and clearly in such ways like that, then the letter probably doesn't reach the church because we're just going to have to end you, John, and we're not going to let you send that out. So instead, there's, there is a veiled to us, a veiled nature in which it's written, but to those who received it, they know exactly what's going on. Now then, uh, this work is uh, the renewal and reconciliation of all things. We see that within this letter of Revelation how the new creation has begun in Jesus the Christ is continued through the witnessing church, which is his body, and will find completion in Christ's final work. This subversively and defiantly means that the Roman emperor is not Lord, nor are any of the pagan deities of the Greco-Roman Empire. There is but one on the throne of the universe. And if you read chapter 4 and chapter 5, which are meant to be read together, by the way, of Revelation, you get a lot of throne language and you get to see this. There is one on the throne of the universe and it is Jesus the Christ. Uh, I would love for us to, that would be if my preferred benediction this morning is that we read those together, but I don't know that we'll have time. Um, but I'm game if we get there. So we're going to head to the last two cities of our letters, last two cities in the, the, the first century world. We're going to begin with, but I'm going to go quickly Uh, hopefully, and we're just only going to brush up against it to get this. These two letters uh, have in common, there's only words of uh, encouragement to them. There is no word of correction to the letter to Philadelphia and the letter to Smyrna. There's only words, which makes them unique in these seven letters, only words of encouragement and affirmation, and we'll see why in this, which makes them unique, so we'll put them together. Uh, so first we'll go to the city of him who loves his brother. That is the Greek word for Philadelphia, what it literally means. The city of him who loves his brother. And if we're thinking, I know, you mean like Philadelphia, you know, like as in the Philadelphia Eagles and Phillies, like that Philadelphia? Well, that name came from this back there, so that's not the beginning. Uh, 
map, please. Uh, so this is where we go. We go inland to where we are in H- ancient Asia Minor, Philadelphia. It's an inland, uh, much like Sardis that we have. And it's kind of right there that's on this really path that it is then traveling from west to east. This is how you would go through. And it got its nickname then. Wow, and look at this really creative nickname. Gateway to the East. Well, well done there. It's really um, creative. So it is the youngest of the seven cities. It's the youngest, founded in 187 BCE or BC by the king of Pergamum, Eumenes II. And his main intent in founding the city was to further promote Hellenism. So we'll get into how that came to be, but Hellenism was a whole culture that dominated the world. Uh, The few pictures I took, so I was in Turkey, Asia Minor, and studied these seven letters, among other things, in a biblical studies trip seven, almost seven and a half years ago. And my pictures that I took then were largely of the vineyards in Philadelphia because they are gorgeous and they are still today in modern-day Turkey. What Philadelphia is known for are their raisins, their grapes, and their wine because the soil there is just beautiful and perfect for good vineyards. The ancient city of Philadelphia has not been excavated. So it's a tell. When you walk, you can see, well, there's, a, there's something underneath those hills. Uh, but it has not been excavated. The patron god of the ancient city was Dionysus, the god Dionysus, which we've talked about. He is the god of theater, the god of wine, and the god of party. Makes sense in Philadelphia, the god of wine and the god of theater and party. The city was initially named as an act of loyalty between two brothers, Eumenes II, king of Pergamum. His brother was Attalus II. He was a military general. Rome wanted to terminate Eumenes, so they asked his brother Attalus to work with them to dethrone and assassinate, essentially, his brother. Attalus said, I will take my brother's side and I will remain loyal to him and I will not go with you, Rome. So this loyalty earned him a nickname, Philadelphus. Attalus Philadelphus, which means brotherly love. So that's where the name initially came from. The city was ravaged by earthquakes in 17 AD or CE, Common Era, in 23 CE. So two different times they had massive earthquakes there, ruined the city. After the earthquake in 17 CE, Emperor Tiberius, who we read about, he was the emperor during most of Jesus's life. Emperor Tiberius said to Philadelphia, because you've had this devastation, I will no longer ask that you pay taxes to Rome so that you have money to rebuild your city. They are excited, grateful to Tiberius, so out of gratitude, they rename the city city to Neo-Caesarea. Neo-Caesarea, and then they build a temple to Tiberius in honor of Tiberius in the city. So all of a sudden, it's important we get this. What this is is a transactional relationship. Oh, thank you, emperor. Out of that, we're going to change the name to our city, build a temple, and now all of a sudden there is this built up or built in or um, growing sense of emperor worship uh, kind of thing. So it's this religious, political, goofy agreement of sorts. 
Then in the early 70s CE, the Roman emperor Vespasian granted Philadelphia significant money in order to strengthen and fortify the city. So they're grateful to him and they changed the name of the city again to Flavia because that's Vespasian's wife's name. So the city changes names again to Flavia. Vespasian's son, or one of them, Domitian, who is the emperor from 81 to 96 at the time of the writing of Revelation, Domitian hated Philadelphia. There are a number of reasons why, but he hated this city, and so he was doing everything to persecute them, make life difficult, and in one of the ways he did is in 92 CE, he issued an edict which required vineyards to be cut down and replaced with corn. Well, if you're Philadelphia and your main thing is vineyards and that kind of builds up your economy, you've just done massive damage to their economy. And Domitian smiles and says, good, because I despise you and I hope you crumble. So he does this. And that point, Domitian declared publicly that the door to this city that goes from west to east and is the gateway, the door to this city is closed. You are no more to me. There was also a significant Jewish population in the city, but they did not believe that Jesus was the coming Messiah. And so they wanted to separate themselves from Jesus' followers. So they began to persecute them as a way of creating separation. And so then you have a small band of Christians. Now here's what scholars have been able to estimate. Between 25 and 36 Christians were in this city. That is all. You look around this room and you go, oh, so our community was bigger than they were. Yep. That's all that was in the first century about this time of the writing. 25 to 36 people who lived a very brutal existence because now they were not just oppressed and and persecuted by Rome. They were oppressed and persecuted by their brothers and sisters of the Jewish tribe, if you will, because they were trying to separate themselves and say, they are not a part of us. We push them out of our synagogues and do not allow them. Which that, hello. Someone on the, is that on the live stream? Someone have a question already. They're falling in. We're going to get there. Hold on, okay? Just send it to the answering machine, all right? Okay. Um, uh, Revelation. With that, we've got enough that we can jump into uh, the letter to Philadelphia. Just like that. All right. Uh, Verse 7 of chapter 3 of Revelation to the angel or messenger of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus affirms that he is the anointed one. He is the coming one. He is the Messiah. He holds all authority and power. Jesus is saying this. And Jesus holds the key of the great King David, which is a symbolic way of saying that he is from the line of the great Jewish line of people, and he is the one who can open and close this door to this city, if you will, to who you are. Oh, by the way, and if I am the one that holds that authority, Jesus says, then that Domitian does not have that authority no matter what he says. So already, oh, oh, this can get you in trouble. Are you with me? All right, verse 8. Verse 8, I know your what? 
deeds. See, I have placed before you an, a what? Oh, fascinating. All this language of doors. That no one, not even Domitian in parentheses, you see what's going on, can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Church, I know you and I know that you are numerically small and yet you have clung to me. Your trust in me has remained. And although you, you have little strength because you've been tested and you have been having that strength extracted through the most brutal of circumstances, both the Rome and your Jewish brothers and sisters, your fidelity and persistence has led to the door I have opened for you. Because you have persisted, you have kept going, this door is open because I open that. Your fidelity has kept that door open, no matter what Domitian says. Verse 9, I will make those who are the, of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Oh, yep, there's a people that, and this gets where you have to be very careful with this, by the way, and when you study this, because this isn't about being uh, like anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish. What it is saying is these people claim to be Jews because they have the ancestral name, but their actions have proven them to not be of the divine. They have chosen not to live this way out of loving God and loving neighbor. Instead, their actions against you show that they are liars and they may not believe in what they are saying. Their actions are proof that they have lost the plot and the commission of loving God and loving neighbor, which is, by the way, all people beginning with those directly in front of you. That's your neighbor. This sentence of the letter combined with the current reality of the people highlight how bitterly ironic the original name of the city is. Oh, the city of brotherly love. And yet these group of people have not only the empire against them, they have their brothers and sisters of the Jewish community that are against them. So all of a sudden you see this name becomes really sad. Um, Within that sentence, can I quickly highlight that we are in a heightened season of gathering with those who share bloodlines and love lines, which are too often these times of gathering, though, are suffocated by preferred politics and a posture of religious piety. We may disagree on the American trinity of politics, sports, and religion, but that is not where our identity is to be rooted or found. Are you with me? So we may first then see one another, oh, you are created in the image of the divine. That is where I will begin this view of you. You are created in the image of God. I'll start there. That is my hope. That is how we would do this. And say, so, oh, interesting. You, you really love that sports team. How about that? I do not. Oh, fascinating. That's your political uh, understanding of things. How did you get there? I will approach you first seeing you as created in the image of the divine, and then I will be 
endlessly ready, curious. I will be so curious. I'm fascinated. How did you get to where you got to? I'd love to learn that. I see things differently. Hopefully, at the end of this, you will ask me how I ended up at my perspective. And we can share perspectives. And ours might be different. And I can still love you. And not chase you out of the house. Or demean you. Or whatever it may be. Because you are first and foremost a reflection of my Christ. So, curiosity. Imagine that. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Uh, they have endured, the, de- endured with divine patience so that the only imperative in this letter, is to hold on to what you already have. It's the only imperative in the letter. Hold on to what you have. And we're going to get to that endure patiently and hold on, key words. We're going to get there. Uh, But verse 12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. Is anyone going anywhere? Or is there coming here? That's always good to know. Uh, And I will also write on them my new name. Now, really important here. Pillars in the ancient world were about permanence, strength. He is telling these people who have have been consistently shaken by persecution and by nature. Earthquakes have wrecked things. No, 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 no. I will make you a pillar of permanence that are not destroyed by Domitian, that will not be destroyed by nature, if you will. And then I will write on you my name. Your identity is solid and unmatched in me, says Jesus the Christ. And then it says God was giving these people who are the church a new name, a divine name that will reign forever and not be constantly changed based on politics and kindness done by emperors and then will shift names based on that. No, 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 I'm going to give you a permanent eternal name. What a gift to a people who have been shaken and constantly persecuted and moved about. This word of comfort, ah, no, I'm giving you something that cannot be taken, cannot be broken, and cannot be shaken. Such a gift. So a divine name that will reign forever and not be constantly changed based on the shallow ways of war and politics. Empire. Verse 13 Whoever has ears, let them hear the word Shema, what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, absorb that, hear it, listen, obey it, walk in it. All of that is true. Only encouragement, no correction in this letter. The only imperative found in this letter is to hold fast or hold on. To hold on to their trust in order for them to continue to endure patiently. 
Their trust in God and one another is literally all this small community has. Their fidelity to the divine has led them to be materialistically poor. That's what it has. We're going to stay with this. Now, the word hold fast in the Greek is the word kriteo. Kriteo means hold fast. It means to seize or to keep faithfully. Very key word. Now, the word endure patiently, those two words are actually one Greek word, hupomone. Go ahead and say hupomone. Hupomone means to hopeful endurance, constancy, sustaining, which raises the question, what this letter reflects and raises to us is what do you criteo in order to hupomone? What is it that you cling to? Next slide. I think, yeah, what do you criteo in order to hupomone? What do you cling to when your world has been shaken? When do, where do you find the strength to endure? Where is it? Or in the midst of struggle and loss, what better? Who holds you together? This community has been oppressed. They have been persecuted by so many different things. And Jesus is affirming and encouraging them. You have put your trust in me. You have held fast to me and my ways. And that has given you hope well done, which poses a question to us, what do we do when things get shaky, when we're rattled? What is it that we or who, who do we hold onto that gives us that hope no matter what? And the reality is we do not face, we have not. You, you, may, you have a story and you have a life and you've had difficulties, but none of us have faced what they had to face. And so what a gift that we have their lives, this community before us. Um, A people then, they are the church, who call themselves a church because, now here's the thing, a people say, oh, we're a church because we get together once a week and we sing songs and we listen to a sermon and then we split. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it. Um, We need more. The, The world, our world needs a new kind of church, if you will, which really is an ancient church, that we rally together and we cling to the promises of Christ and we cling to one another to support one another no matter what. And how we live and serve together, the larger community, how we rally around one another, take care of one another, that then in our deeds knits us together as a church. This matters much, and especially in too many conversations that I've had recently. Specifically this week, I sat with a friend who runs uh, an urban ministry. And this last weekend, they had one of the teens in which they witnessed and spent time with, and she was lost. One of their teens went missing. And so they, they gathered on a Sunday morning. She was missing on a Saturday night. gathered on a Sunday morning to pray. And then they said, we will go and walk our streets now to find her. As they gathered in their space, they have this space. They also had a church plant or have a church plant that meets in this space. That church was gathering on a Sunday morning and they came together and they were letting them know, hey, we're going to pray. We need to go look for one of our students. They told the church this. They prayed, and they said, let's go, let's go together. And the church got up, and they said, we're leaving. And they said, where are you going? You, and they said, well, church is over. We're going to lunch. And so this friend of mine sits with me 
and is heartbroken. Hey, you're a pastor. Tell me, does that feel like church to you? I said, it doesn't. But they said they got together already. They sang their songs. They heard their sermon. They had church, and now they're going to have lunch. But there's a person missing. So there's an invitation to be the church. And I said, yeah, that breaks my heart. I don't even know what to tell you other than hold fast to the Christ that you know. Yeah, we, we need, our world needs a new kind of church. One that will say, no, we're going to, we'll, we'll gather, we'll sing. Oh, I hope we sing and encourage one another and dig into the scriptures. And then the reality is we need to go live together the, the, the scriptures. We need to embody the love of God and love of neighbor. Uh, so with that, that's Philadelphia. Would you stand with me? And I would love for us to sink into the Shema together. This ancient Hebrew prayer statement, uh, reflection. It is a creed, if you will. There are all these things built into it, uh, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, along with Leviticus 19.18, combined together, understood as the great commandment, love God, love neighbor, that we would say this together and we would live this out because it's needed when the church is needed to be for and with people today. So uh, I hope... Is, is the Shema in there? Great. Uh, we'll say it together in uh, Hebrew, and then we'll say it together in English. So if you would repeat after me, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ichad, Ve'ahavta, Et Adonai, Elohecha, Bucho, Levavka, Uvacho, Navshika, Uvacho, meodecha, veahafta, lereacha, kamocha, amin. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. May that be true of this community, that we would be the church. May that be true when we leave here today. All right, you may be seated. Let's take a step into the letter to the church in Smyrna, which is modern-day Izmir. Uh, It's on the coast, about 35 miles north of Ephesus. Uh, Its population in the first century, 150,000 during the time of this letter. So it was the second largest city in Asia Minor then. Smyrna was known for its beauty, including having, so their reputation of having the most beautiful women, which partners with its claim to be the birthplace of the poet Homer. So think the Iliad and Odyssey, which why you think like beautiful women. So think the hypnotizing siren song of beautiful women. They put all that together and they go, yeah, that's why we're known for beauty, 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 and all this. Uh, And they claim that. So uh, next slide will be a map, it should be. So you put um, where we've been, Philadelphia. Now we're in Smyrna. So here's Ephesus. Just up from there is Smyrna, still on the coast a bit, but you're, you're heading 
uh, into where it kind of holds a number of things together. Very wealthy community. Uh, next slide. Uh, that just highlights our good friend Smyrna there. Uh, not only known for beauty, but was also known for its tie to death. Why? Because the Greek word Smyrna is the same word myrrh. Myrrh, which is a spice, sweet-smelling spice, that was used to wrap bodies to prepare them for burial. And this was the number one commodity of this city, Smyrna. Their number one commodity, their largest export, was myrrh. This is where they get their name. The city was understood to have died and returned to life because it was destroyed in 600 BC or BCE and then was refounded and rebuilt into the community that we would understand in the first century in 300 BCE by a guy named Alexander the Great. He refounded and rebuilt this with one of his generals, Lysimachus, and built it up to be quite something. Uh, In 195 BCE, Smyrna became the first city to build a temple of worship in honor of the goddess Roma, who is the personification of Rome. Yeah, well done there. In 26, Common Era 26 uh, CE, Smyrna was chosen as the Neochorus, which is the worship headquarters for Emperor Tiberius. Here's our Tiberius. This became the Neochorus, the worship headquarters for Tiberius, which we pointed out, or I pointed out, that Smyrna outbid, outdid 10 other cities to get this honor, including beating out Laodicea, we often hear Laodicea, Ladikaya, beat them out. That's where they were slighted, and they get this honor. Smyrna was known then for their fierce loyalty and faithfulness to Rome. They hosted a number of athletic games where the winners were awarded garland crowns. And this is where we started getting into like the Olympic Games and giving out awards, and they gave out garland crowns to the winners. And these athletic games were a big deal. Uh, I have some pictures. I have a lot of pictures from Smyrna, but we're going to keep it tight. So next slide. Uh, This is one of them. This is the Agora, the state Agora. This is the best preserved state Agora, the Agora in the ancient world. It is stunning. It was very innovative. Uh, Next slide. I'd give you an idea that what it did is they did some really brilliant work, but they built these arches and they did a thing so that there was agora up top and then they built a agora underneath, like underground thing to be able to expand and do things. They thought, well, we can only go so far this way, but I bet if we go down, we can do some really fun things. Next slide. So you can see a bit of how they did some things. So they had shops and they had some different things underground that were really, it's quite stunning to be at. But with its massive, innovative agora, it was a very prosperous city for the Roman Empire. A very important city to Rome then. Most scholars have the Christian church in Smyrna being founded on Paul's third missionary journey, approximately 30 years before the writing of this letter to the church is their Christian church is founded there uh, by Paul. Uh, in the city, so this is really quite something, some of that, and we could get into much more of these things, but we won't this morning. Instead, we're going to go to this hill. This hill, next slide. Um, this is a sketch. I want to do a couple things here. In the city, the way it would be, this is formerly known as Mount Pagos. 
it was referred to as the crown of Smyrna. So next slide. So you see what it is, is in the city, and this was a bit more than uh, early 1900s, um, this picture, that they have this city uh, up on top on where Mount Pagos is. They had all of these magnificent government buildings were built that housed all these really important officials, and they, they it set up top, and they just said, this is the crown of our city. It held all these important meetings and things that took place. It's really quite something. So the, the city took immense pride in the crown of the city. Uh, next slide is the picture I took when, when I was there. It's now, like, it's just all modern getting built up around it. But some of the important houses, and there is uh, some still government buildings there. It's really quite fascinating. Um, that... that uh, helped marry them to Rome and keep that kind of relationship going. There was a large Jewish synagogue in Smyrna. The Jews now, and this goes within Philadelphia, were given special permission by Rome to worship their own God and not blend into Roman culture. There was a way and say, you can do that. You can have your own little religion. But followers of Jesus were being kicked out of the synagogue by the synagogue leaders because the Jewish authorities wanted to create distance. They're not of us, though. They're doing something different. So they, made, they wanted to make Rome understand, they're not with us. Please don't get us in trouble because of what they're doing following Jesus, who they believe is the Christ. This left followers of Jesus, regardless of ethnicity, vulnerable as they were no longer under the protection of this particular law, which made them then, in the first century, an illegal religion, in that way, which meant they were going to be persecuted by Rome, which led to extensive beatings, imprisonment, exile, and even death. So then that gives us enough, and I just want so much more for this, but we're going to jump into the letter. It'll give us enough. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who did what? died and came to life again. Jesus says, like you, I was once dead, and yet I am alive, and I am the one who makes you alive, not Rome. See how they would read this, and they're like, oh, so what he's saying is, I'm the one who is the beginning, and I'm at the end. I am all this and hold it together. So it's not Rome. Jesus has entered death, gone all the way through it, and has defeated it by means of resurrection. This is what I have for you, church. Verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, important, this goes beyond Jesus simply informing the church, hey, I've seen that you guys are in trouble and that you're getting persecuted. What Jesus says is, I knit myself together with you. I know this more than just that you're hurting. I, too, have gone through this. I understand because I, too, have been beaten and persecuted and even killed. So I am with you in this struggle. Not only have they suffered oppression under Rome, it's, which then is an easy target to say, oh, the enemy, but Jesus knows that they have suffered at the hands of family and friends. In this, the church in Smyrna is the opposite of the church in Laodicea. Because this church is materially 
destitute, but rich in witness. If you remember, Latikaya had lots of money. They actually built up all this wealth, but they compromised their trust in Jesus to make money. They compromised the way of being the church to say, we're going to do some things, we're going to bend to make money. This church in Smyrna says, we will not jump through the hoops to, to make money. We will not play the game of Rome in order to fatten our wallets. We will, f- we will remain faithful to Jesus, and that actually means they, meant they were poor. They don't, okay, we're not going to be able to make as much money, and they're like, whatever. So what does Jesus tell them? You're rich. That's a tough, it's like encouraging, but imagine hearing that. Oh, yes, thank you. Like Jesus is reframing the whole thing. The world has a definition of rich. I have a different definition. So, um, although poor is defined by the world's wallet, unwilling to participate in the agora, they are rich in Christ, which is what matters most. There are the religious among them who are claiming to be people of God, but are not. Once again, their actions toward people, specifically followers of Jesus, are proving them to be the work of the Satan, which is the accuser, the deceiver. Not a person, but an essence, a spirit of accusation, a spirit of deception. Throughout Revelation, Jesus speaks to the deeds. One of the most common words in Revelation is deeds, action, which often centers on how people treat other people. In the ancient world, get this, and still true of the Eastern world today, which is where the scriptures come from us, and this all comes from the East, heresy was defined by actions taken, not ideas discussed. Heresy was a Oh, oh you are living off course. That's a heresy. We tend to say, you can't say those words. You can't discuss those ideas. That's heretical. But to the, and especially when you have the Jewish people, they're like, no, one of the most, um, one of the most known things about Jewish people is their discourse. They talk about everything. Their understanding is, how are we going to discuss something? How are we going to get anywhere unless people present ideas? We can talk about anything. Let's go for it. It's our actions that will lead us into whether or not we're heretical. But we, it's great, we ought to talk about it, which is why I say, well, in the church, if it matters, then we should be talking about it. If there are some things, we should discuss that. Somebody's got a question, well, we should lean into that. What is your question? Instead, well, you can't ask that. You can't say that. You can't think that. Well, but if we discuss it, maybe we walk that thing out and then someone will go, oh, I thought that, but boy, we just talked about it and I guess that seems a bit odd, so no. But if I say, no, you can't even talk about it. You're, in, you're stuck in your head by yourself. Because if you say those words, well, that's heresy. Very different world in which they lived in. Um, Yeah, this was additionally painful, though, because followers of Jesus were not claiming a new religion. It's really interesting. They were claiming the fulfillment of the ancient Hebrew covenant. They understood themselves as extending and expanding a faith of words spoken and written to lives that embodied the way of Jesus the Christ. 
who was the complete embodiment of the divine. They understood we're taking what we learned, what we grew, what is the basis of our faith, and now we're going to put actions to it. We're going to continue moving that forward by the word incarnate. That's what they understood they were doing. It's not a new religion. It's a fulfillment. It's a forward movement of what we have since learned, the Torah. It's now got flesh and blood on it, and we're walking it out, following Jesus in that. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. 10 days is a euphemism for a brief time. This is where we always got to learn numbers in the scriptures typically mean often other things, not just like the literal. But 10 days is a brief, it's a euphemism for a brief time. And John addresses this later in chapter 12. This is one thing where I, I, I wanted to cut, but I'm like, we can't. We've got to come to it. We've got to sit in Revelation 12 for a, a minute. Because in chapter 12, John has a vision in which he describes a wondrous sign, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She gives birth to a son. What do we got going on here? Who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. In this vision, there is also a dragon who wages war on the woman and her son. So I want to read just these uh, few verses in Revelation chapter 12 to give us an idea of what John is uh, pitching towards. So next slide. Uh, I think, yes, great. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Now that time has come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him. How did they triumph over him? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their witness. That word testimony is the word martus, which is where we get the word martyr, but it means witness. By their testimony, this is how it's triumphed. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in our witnessing to that reality. That's how we win. And by the word of the testament, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So he's coming after you. And there will be a time in which you get attacked, however it may be. Sure, that time won't last. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, then it jumps to this. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who attend to the commands of God carefully and wear their testimony, marturia, their witness. They wear it. They live it. It's seen in how they act about Jesus. Are you with me? Conquering and victory is not found by means of violently fighting and spilling others' blood, but by the fat sacrificial blood of Jesus through love already poured out by the divine. 
and our witness to trusting in this way of love by how we live. Jesus lived and gived his life sacrificially in love. And that then in our witness to that love and walking out of it, that's how we fight the Satan, the Hasatan, the accuser, the deceiver. How the world would change and be different if the church would learn this and live this. I just think it wouldn't be much different. Verse, chapter, we'll jump back to chapter 2 then. So it's just a little peek into what we see. Be faithful then, even to the point of death. And I will give you what? What a fascinating thing, which we have to lean into then. And I will give you life as your what? Victor's crown. Oh, so interesting. For those who walk in this way of Christ, you will receive life. That word in the Greek is the word zoe. Go ahead and say zoe. Zoe is a beyond space and time kind of life. It is not just the circumstantial. That in the scriptures is the word suke, which is a circumstantial day-to-day kind of life. Then there is another word that is used throughout, especially the Gospel of John, called Zoe, which is a bigger, wider, eternal kind of life. You'll get that as you're crowned, not the small, shriveled imagination kind of living in which we bend and we're always like, I spilled my coffee, it's the worst day ever. Oh, then I got flowers, it's the best day ever. Oh, then I got in my car and there's a dent in it, worst day ever. I got to work, I got a a, a raise, best day ever. Then at lunchtime, my girlfriend called me and she broke up with me, worst day ever. But then at the end of my day, my boss said I get a new car as a part of my promotion, best day ever. But then I went out to dinner and I learned my dog passed away, worst day ever, and we have this suke, good heavens, I'm exhausted by the end of the day kind of living. Or there's a zoe kind of life that transcends but includes all of that, but it transcends it. Are you with me? (laughs) This is the expansive transcendent life everlasting, which is better than a garland crown from some sports victory or some fancy building on a hill kind of life. Verse 11. Whoever has ears, let them shma what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the what? Oh, second death. To be clear, a first death is coming. You will at some point stop breathing. That is for all people. But you who, are e- who live in fidelity to Christ, do not fear. Don't be wrapped up and caught up and lose the plot in this fear because the second death will not touch you. You will experience the first death, but your faithfulness to me, be assured, there is no second death for you. Again, there is no correction in this letter. Along with the letter to Philadelphia, Jesus does challenge them to not be seized by fear. Fear is the engine of the game, what if? Do you know this game, what if? What if I lose my job? What if the love isn't returned? What if it is cancer? All of those are very real concerns, but it's found within the first death. And so it does not get the last word. Jesus 
the Christ, in the face of what if, Jesus announces what is. Are you with me? All of those what ifs subside to the what is forever. And Jesus announces that to them. Jesus brings comfort to the hurting. He brings presence and healing to the broken, battered and abused. Jesus was there in the beginning and he is the end. Jesus has gone through death and come out the other side. So I would say this, fear has no place in this place in me because I've been, we've been seized by resurrection. Resurrection lives within us. So I will not fear in that way. Smyrna had a choice. They could give in to fear of the first death or they could be known for faithfulness to living to the living Christ. Now, sometime around the writing of Revelation, a disciple of John's, one of his disciples, named Polycarp, was put in position as the bishop of this city, Smyrna. And he served as bishop of Smyrna for about 60 years. In this time, Polycarp continually kept on refusing to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. He said, I I will not say Caesar is Lord. He was eventually arrested in 155 CE. Polycarp was threatened with execution. If you do not publicly proclaim that the Caesar is Lord and offer sacrifices to him, we will kill you. When threatened with this, Polycarp said this. Next slide. Polycarp said, 86 years I've served Jesus and he never did me injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? That was his response. I love it. No, I'm holding strong. Polycarp was burned at the stake in the stadium where they did their athletic events in Smyrna. The chronicler of his martyrdom wrote, it was not, I think we have this on the next slide, it was not as burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver being refined in a furnace. This was a letter written to the church in Smyrna about Polycarp. Uh, it's like bacon. He, he, he gave his life. There are writings saying the flames could not consume him, and so soldiers standing by had to stab him repeatedly with swords. Many of them died just getting that close to the flame because he wouldn't die. There's a, there's a lot of artwork, but here's a couple. Uh, there's a painting on the left, and then this was in one of the murals uh, that I got to see in one of the museums. Stunning, but just kind of some of the artwork that they did around that they understood of Polycarp. Polycarp is understood to be the first post-New Testament martyr. Witness. His life is marked as a story of faithfulness, a story that witnesses to the fact that death does not get the last word. The last word is reserved for my Jesus, is what Polycarp lived and embodied and walked out. And that, because of this, like, second century is where this began to heighten, and more and more were experienced martyrdom, if you will, which we understand martus than witness. Martyr, we understand it often as, well, people dying for their faith, but it was really just people witnessing to their faith no matter what. And it just got worse and worse. 
but it's just to witness to Christ. Which then, a couple of reflections, Psalm 20, verse 6 and 7. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our Elohim. Yeah, we, we don't play the game of empire. Our trust isn't in military machines and weapons. Ours is in God. I find the last words of the seven letters to be an adequate summary and challenge for us here today. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 22, the last words to, this, uh, to, the, to these seven churches is this. Do we have that? No, we don't. Okay, it's fine. They'll sound familiar. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them shma, which, so you should know, it's embodied. It's not just hearing it. It's I will then walk it out. I will respond to it. So I would say this. Our greatest challenge is not whether we can hear the Spirit, which some times can certainly be a challenge, but it's not whether we can hear the Spirit, but will we acknowledge and respond to the Spirit? The question is, what, do, what happens when we hear, that, when we feel that nudge, when we get that elbow in our ribs, when we hear that tug in our heart? What do we do when we know, like, I know I have to go this way? How do you respond to Spirit? Because I would say more times than not, the, what we get in these letters is you have communities that say, we're going to walk this out no matter what. And you have other co- communities that go, yeah, I know, but that might be really difficult. So I, the Spirit's inviting me into this, but I think God will understand if I say no because I really need to make some extra money this month because I understand Rome's going to turn the electric bill up. And so I've got to figure that out. They say, no, we will hear, we will walk out that no matter what. We will cling to the Christ. We will will cling to the way of Jesus no matter what. And the only way we'll make it, though, is if we knit ourselves together in community. Because you have something I don't, I have something you don't, and when we put those together, now we can hold strong together. That's what the church was, and it's what the church is invited to be today, and we need that now more than ever. We need it now more than ever. Uh, I'd like to say a word of prayer, and then we can have some question and response, if you will. Gracious God, uh, we bless you for the gift of life. None of us made our lives. None of us woke ourselves up this morning. We were awakened. We have been breathed in to us. You breathe life into us. Each day you breathe life into us that we have. We acknowledge it as gift. It's grace. I bless you for that, God. I bless you for each person here that we have life. May we respond as an act of worship. May we respond with gratitude. Thank you. 
I bless you, God, for teaching us, guiding us, for giving us such a witness of all of these people who have gone before us and have walked with you, and we get to read and immerse ourselves in learning of their successes and their incredible failures in following and not following you, what that has looked like, and we get to learn from that. But I bless you, God, that we get to interact with you, hear from you, be with you, listen to what you are inviting us into and how you're inviting us into it as a community. May we respond with gratitude. May we respond in love and with love. I bless you, God, for this time that we have had over the last seven weeks as a community. May you continue to continue May you continue to pour into us as you do. And that we would continually, over and over, choose you and choose to grow in you, through you. And that that would be good news as we know it will be to the wider community. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, So I would love to just have some time of questions and we call it Q&R because we're going to respond to that. I'm not saying that we've, it's not necessarily about having all the answers always, but it's hopefully having some little bit of discussion around that. And we'll just have a little bit of time for that. You can always email, send them in too. Um, so if anybody has any questions and people online, you can always send them in. Lisa will get them. If you type them up, Lisa will grab a hold of them. But any questions, they're all up for grabs. Whatever it is that's bouncing around, love it. Go for it. Somebody gets to go first. Oh, good. Sean will. That's a great question. Um, so to repeat it, uh, our suburban lifestyle, but also just kind of the way things are structured, it can be much harder for us to actually lean on one another and choose choose community because we are set up in many, many ways to be independent. Um, and we have much more of an individualistic uh, lifestyle in, in, in this way. So how do we go about choosing community and doing that? We have to work a little bit harder. We actually do have to, like, choose it. We have to choose to gather as the church, but we have to choose to live together as the church. It is going to be more difficult. Um, one thing that I forgot to mention, and this speaks into it, which is a bummer I didn't, um, Th- that, the way that Agora was shaped in the way in Smyrna, or th- within that then, one of the buildings that was a part of that was actually the model because it was an oblong building that then had a semicircle kind of way in which they was set up for public gatherings, which was part of how they shaped it. So public gatherings and business could take place. And why I mention that, it's what the Christian church used that for 
that architecture to model the first church buildings off of, like the gathering places. They said, what if our buildings were more in the round, but specifically, what if they were central to the community? They then said our, our facilities, the first earliest Christian buildings, should be in the center of the city so that people can all have easy access to that and we can gather publicly in the community. This building would be good news to the community and a source of goodness. I find that deeply compelling and I, it makes me raise the question, what happens if the church gathering, the church facility, if you will, if they have one, what happens if it was central to the community? And what happens if it was good news, not just one day a week, but good news to the community because it was open to the public for interacting and gathering? Does that sound familiar to anyone who's been around here for a little while? Now we're talking about what we are desiring to, it's literally found in this. This is some of the way in which it was given birth to me seven and a half years ago is, oh, I don't think I want to have a church building, if you will, that is just for these people on this day and everyone else. You you won't get it. The building will be weird looking to you and it'll have all these things that don't make sense and, and it doesn't function well for you. But what happens if it is good news to the community? So one is what happens if we then say, I'm going to make, maybe it's sacrifices, in order to be in community a bit more. Uh, I'm going to stretch myself and I'm going to go here and do work here or do stuff in this space so that I can connect with people, serve them more, or at least be with them. It might take sacrifice on behalf of the Christian church to better be in community and serve the community. How do we do that? Well, it can be both in, uh, like, together in community, larger, but also um, uh, individually. Uh, we don't have to know our neighbors. I mean, apparently, we don't have to. Like, we, our, we have our house and our house. So we have to choose to know our neighbors. And by the way, our neighbors, you're, maybe they're very different than you. And you're going to go, I'm going to have to really set aside some stuff to just go and invite them over for dinner. I have to work really, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going to be, I am a bit of an introvert, but I'm going to throw a block party once a year because I'm going to work really hard to tie this block together in ways that it's just not. And I tell you what, I'm going to go over and talk to my neighbor and say, you have a lawnmower and I have a lawnmower, but we don't mow the lawn on the same day. If we get together and say, can you use the lawnmower on this day and I'll use it on that day and we can actually cut down cost of living because we all don't need a lawnmower. We can share. Hey, when you, you have a snowblower, I don't. Could we go in on something here? Could we work that out? Let's communicate and build that, that, that kind of thing. Like, let's talk about how we can do stuff in community. Sure. But it's going it's to take a little uncomfortableness, uh, sacrifice, um, certainly patience and understanding and beginning with this person is created in the image of God, first and foremost. So hopefully that's some of the stuff that is, and it's messy then, but the church is messy because we immerse ourselves in the world in which Jesus loves and is putting back together.
a thought. One of the ways. Thank you. Good, great question. A lot for us to actually think into. Yeah. We can do it as well. That's a really good point. So just kind of raise like, it seems like we have to lean into one another because things are going to get, so things are difficult. They can be certainly, but probably going to get more difficult. Real quick, just in the last uh, five, six, seven, eight years, have things become um, more kind and warm or a bit more, a little bit uh, troublesome in our, in our society? Where a little bit more people are going to now, this is what I think, and I'm going to let you know. Oh, you didn't ask? I don't really care. I'm going to tell you. Oh, you think differently, and it's got to be a... St- yeah, you, you believe certain things, and I think there is a bit of why we need this encouragement too, we need this more than ever because we actually live in, um, there are things like, uh, I hear things, well, we have the God-given right to, to have our faith. And that's not a God-given right. That's actually American. Freedom of religion, that's American-given. That's not God-given. God says, love me and love your neighbor, but that's not, a, that's not um, law. In our country, we have the freedom of religion. We should be thankful for that. We should be grateful but I don't know how long that lasts. And I'm actually not going to concern, like I don't, if that goes away, that goes away. I'm not sure. They didn't have that. And so I'll take comfort in knowing if I'm going to do this and we need one another because it might be more and more difficult because it might not be always the way it is. I hope so and I hope we have that, but that's also... It's not a guarantee. So we, we best to practice this even when we wouldn't have to, if you will, but we choose to. And that's a difference. They had to. They had to for survival. We don't have to for survival, but we can choose it to be good news to the larger community, good news to one another. It's, it's a choice, but we can certainly, hopefully we'll do now because I don't, uh, one thing I heard, though, that I think is fascinating is unity, which we all would want more, unity or, or some unity. Unity is not something that will be given. Unity is something not achieved. Biblically, unity happened in Christ. Unity is a gift that's already begin, been given. The church has been invited to live into it. That's like a really needed word. I heard that a couple weeks ago at a conference. Pastor said, hey, I think we've got an idea that we're like, we're working for unity. Well, I understand we're working to embody it and live into it, but it's already been gifted by the one that can only do it, who's putting all things back together. We live into that. So we need to live in a unified way in order to make it more real, but it's already been gifted to us. That's a choice we have to make, and that's difficult. But hopefully we'll start doing it now because I don't know what tomorrow is.
Sure. Needed word more than ever. Oh. Great. Love it. More? That's awesome. Um, thank you. And, and the needed. So the comment is essentially, what an encouragement knowing that the numbers numerically, the churches, however, they, but some of them, what we do get, Philadelphia, that one was blew me away. Very small number of people, but knit together, have a large witness and can make a large impact by how they live together. And it is needed. And that is really important. And I do think that we can do that uh, in, in being knit together. We, we have no idea how far it goes. We have no idea how far that reaches. Um, but we do live in an age in which we have actually capabilities to have the message go further, farther, and do things in ways that they didn't then. It's amazing. Uh, but what you referenced is uh, understood in church history by the end of the second century... 90-some percent of Asia Minor, which is no small territory, 90% was Christian by the end of the second century, somewhere in there. Because of witness, community together, holding to the ways of Christ. Somehow, like you just go, that's fascinating. But when we do that, and it's good news... People are like, what is it with these people? Why do they live the way they live and why do they take care of one another the way they do? It goes far. Uh, And I hope we hear that as encouragement, certainly. Thank you. I do. Other questions, thoughts, anything? Uh, No, there. Anyone? Yes, no, no, it's great. Just saying, because you do, somewhere in there, it's great. Um, but if you have questions and you'd like, eh, I'd rather not say, you can email, send it in. Hopefully this is just a, this is all, uh, you know, a springboard anyways for further conversation that we lean in more. There's obviously so much that we didn't get to touch. Um, encourage you to read Revelation, Revelation. Read 4 and 5, really stunning. 21, 22. This is about the movement to restoration, the letter is. It is about completion, but it's rooted in a real time and place. It just extends more. So there's a lot going on. But there's that. Um, I'll say a word of prayer, and then um, we'll sing a blessing and offer a blessing and head out. Gracious God, we bless you for this time together as your body, the church. May we, Holy One, have ears to hear, that is, hearts that are open, minds that are open to hear what you are saying and have been saying and will continue saying. 
to say to the church. That we would be open and we would respond and walk out your ways as best as we can together. That we would knit our arms together, our lives together and live this out in and through you, that it would be good news and we trust it will be that your goodness will go. Bless you for this time. Pray this in Christ's name.